0: So here we are. We're talking about the witness of the Old Testament to Christ. I'm just going to take a couple of minutes to uh, review, and then we'll look at some more passages. The question is, how does the the whole Old Testament point to Christ? Not just the prophetic sections um, that prophesy specifically about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem or Jesus' suffering in uh, Isaiah 53 and things like that, Uh, But are there other things, other ways in the narratives in the Old Testament, the historical material, the stories, where God was showing how he would work with people to redeem them in a preliminary way, and that looked forward to what he would do in Christ in a more final way? And I mentioned that a lot of this is based on a book by a former professor of mine from Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, Edmund Clowney, the book, The Unfolding Mystery, Discovering Christ in the Old Testament. Um, so we said one, pr- one approach to fitting the whole Bible together is systematic theology. Another approach is biblical theology, tracing historical development of themes through the Bible. And we've been doing that for several weeks. Um, and uh, there are some examples, just as when Paul says that Adam was a type, uh, a pattern, a model of the one who was to come. Um, and uh, so are there other things in the Old Testament that are types or patterns of Jesus? Um, and Edmund Clowney said, a type is a form of analogy. It's like an analogy. It's a form of analogy distinctive to the Bible, and it combines identity and difference. And so First Peter said the Old Testament prophets were serving us in what they wrote. Now the goal is to view every text in the light of the sweep of what's happening from Genesis to Revelation. And, um, and we took some examples from the Old Testament last week, Adam and Eve, Adam being a ruler, uh, uh, and ruling over the earth, but Jesus would be the greater ruler. Jesus would have would Adam was in the image of God. Jesus would be uh, more fully in the image of God and perfectly show who God was. And there were some other themes like that. We looked at the themes in the fall, and we looked at the themes in Cain and Abel. Now, that's where we were. Now I want to go on and look at the question of Noah and the flood, which you probably, if you if you were a child growing up in Sunday school, you remember hearing this story about the, all the animals coming into the ark, and the flood coming on the earth, and all the earth being destroyed, and then Noah and his family being saved. I've just put some verses here that give us an overview of the story that is in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so God tells Noah to build this ark. And um, God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. And then in Genesis 7, we read about the flood actually happening. In the sixth hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On On the very same day... Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered into the ark. So we have eight people going into the ark, Noah and his wife, and the three sons, and three daughters-in-law, making the eight persons that entered into the ark on the day that the fountains of the great deep burst and the windows of the heavens were opened, and the flood comes on the earth. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Now what I want us to do in passages like this is to say, now let's reflect on what are the themes? What are the major themes that are going on in this passage? Well, one theme certainly is that there's God's judgment on sin. Another theme is that God rescues some people from judgment. Some, there were some that found grace or favor in, in the sight of the Lord. And I think there's something else going on here. Um, as it turned out, there was only one way To be saved from that flood, and that was to be in the ark. The ark only had one door, actually, and uh, they had to enter into that door uh, in the way that God had told them. And the ark that saved the people also passed through the waters of judgment, because here the waters really are waters of judgment. They're coming to destroy all life on the earth. Now the question is, if we look at those themes do they, in fact, cause us then to look forward to something greater? This isn't the end of the story of what God is going to do on the earth. There's something more coming. Uh, this isn't the end of the Bible. Now we know, in retrospect, um, because, you know, uh, there was that promise that there'd be a seed of the woman that would bruise the head of the serpent, and, try, and, and evil wouldn't triumph on the earth, Ultimately. And you, you just begin to wonder, here God's destroying uh, all the human race except uh, these eight people, and he's kind of flooding the earth. Has God given up on his purpose that there would be human beings in his image ruling over the earth? And uh, that the earth that he started with was very good, and it was pleasant in his sight, and it was pleasing to him. Now he's just destroying it. Is this really the end, or is there something greater coming? So do these themes look forward? to anything else. Well, I think with the benefit of the New Testament now, we can see that this wasn't the end. The Bible went on beyond that. But it also is a prediction that it it wasn't the end of the blessings, but it also wasn't the end of the judgments. And so I think we can see in this some themes that look forward in this way. God's judgment on sin, when we see it, we should remember that a final judgment is coming, that, um, that, God, is, that God takes sin seriously, and uh, there will be a final accounting for sin. And so we could trace judgments through the Bible. Um, it, first, God's uh, judgment on the sin of uh, Adam and Eve, and cursing of the earth, and casting them out of the garden, and the, they, set, uh, they began to age, and eventually they would die. Then there was, uh, you have a judgment here in the flood. Later you have a judgment of fire and brimstone or fire and sulfur coming from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. You have the people of Israel coming in judgment on the Canaanites and destroying them. and uh, uh, The city of Jericho that is, is burned with fire. Um, and uh, those all look forward to a final judgment that is going to come one day when God, in fact, will judge the whole earth. But will anybody be saved? Well, in the final judgment that is coming, God God rescued His people from judgment in the flood. He rescued Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's children. He rescued when when uh, the people of Israel came into the land of Canaan and they destroyed the city of Jericho, and they burned the city with fire, yet there was a remnant saved out. God rescued a small number, rescued Rahab and her family, so there's a pattern. God brings judgment, but then he saves his people, and we can trace that, and we can look forward to the final judgment. God rescues his people from judgment throughout history, and he will again rescue us from final judgment, and we'll be kept safe. In the ark, there was only one way to be saved. That was to get into the ark. Uh, And if you didn't do, you didn't do what God said and get into the ark. Noah was preaching and he was warning people, Uh, but they they laughed at him and they didn't think that uh, that uh, they didn't take his warning seriously. But then the judgment came and then it was too late. So God provides the way of salvation, and um, I think that we look forward as well that in a larger sense. In a, even in terms of eternal salvation, God will provide the way. Now, we looked at the Adam and Eve story, and Adam, as Paul says in Romans, Adam was a type of Christ. He looked forward to Christ, There's and there's parallel between Adam and Christ made in the New Testament. We looked at the Cain and Abel story. Cain killed his brother Abel. Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice. Abel really was a type of Christ. He's looking forward to Christ because He offered an acceptable sacrifice. Jesus would come and offer a more acceptable sacrifice. Abel was killed by his brother, though he was righteous. Jesus was killed by his own people, or sentenced or delivered to death by his own people, even though he was righteous. So Abel looks forward to Christ, but the book of Hebrews says that the blood of Jesus speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. So there's a tie in there. But is it only people who look forward to Christ? What is happening here in the story of the ark? What is it that saves the people from judgment? In fact, it's the ark, isn't it? It's the ark that saves them from judgment. And you think of the ark when it's sitting there, and all of a sudden, all the waters of judgment come on the ark. The ark protects the people. So in a way, I think the ark is its not a person, it's an object, but it's looking forward to the ark that saves them also passes through the waters of judgment. It's looking forward to the fact that a greater Savior is coming who will bear a greater punishment and bring not just salvation from drowning, but an eternal salvation. So in a way, I think the ark is prefiguring Christ. interesting we go over to the new testament and first peter comments on noah and the flood it says this first peter 3:18 for christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to god being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What? What does that mean? Baptism corresponds to Noah and his family being saved through water. And when you think about it, look at this. Oh, I'm not going to get in because there's water in here. But this is a baptismal tank. You believe it? There's water in there. And people are baptized, maybe later today, people are baptized. They go down into the water. And when you think of that image of the flood, going down under the water is an image of death, isn't it? Just like the waters of the Red Sea drowned the Egyptians. Just like the waters of the Jordan River, where water, but the Israelites were brought safely through. Jonah being cast into the waters is being cast down into the depths of the sea, cast into his, de- into the, into his death. So the flood waters are surely waters of judgment. And I think baptism then is a sign not only of being buried with Christ and raised with him, but it's a sign of passing through waters of judgment safely. Picture. How can you pass through those waters of judgment safely? You have to be What's the only thing that can keep you from judgment? It's Jesus, isn't it? You have to be in Christ. You have to be united with him so that he was put to death and raised so we can be put to death and raised. But but we're joined with him, but we pass through judgment safely. And so Peter knows that, and he says, baptism is like going through the flood. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Uh Uh-oh. What does that mean? We, ah, we don't think baptism saves you, do we, in this church? I hope not. But the, the answer to many questions of biblical interpretation is finish the sentence. And here Peter explains, baptism saves you, and he says, now wait a minute, not just the physical activity of cleansing your body, you go into the water and the dirt washes off, it's not the, just the physical action, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience. How does baptism save you? In your heart, you're asking God, please forgive my sins. And that faith that's in your heart as an appeal to God for a good conscience, that's what saves you. It's the inward spiritual reality, not the physical action that saves you. It's the inward spiritual reality that baptism represents and that accompanies baptism. That's what saves you. In other words, the faith that you have and and the, the asking for forgiveness of sins. And it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter, I think, is saying that baptism is like that. That being baptized is like going through the waters of the flood. In both cases, you come safely through judgment, and the ark anticipated Christ. So now Christ keeps us safe in baptism. What do you think about that? Want to talk about that for a minute? Any questions? Do you ever think of the flood that way? It is judgment. Surely it's judgment, isn't it? Uh, and surely they're kept safe by something that God provides. Yeah? Mark. Just law for people. No, I don't think. I don't. Because, uh, it, it, yeah, and I'll just repeat for the tape. Mark is saying do, do people use the flood as indicating God is responsible for evil? No because he brings judgment on it, not on himself. And so the blame for sin in the Bible, beginning to end, is always put on the human beings who sin or the angels or demons who sin. Yeah, angels become demons by sin. Yeah. Okay, well, should we try another one? Let's try... Oh, I'll just mention this one briefly. Here is uh, Abraham, again, this theme of... a of the seed or the offspring of the woman is carried forward. In Abraham, Genesis fifteen one to 6 the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, The word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. There's a promise of a son who's going to be the heir and this idea of an offspring of the woman who's going to bring salvation. The thing here is that it's long delayed. Abraham is 90 when he gets the promise. He has to wait another 10 years till... His son is born, and I think God is teaching us through this that he's teaching us to be patient and to trust him, though his promise is delayed, the fulfillment of it, it will still be fulfilled. And so... I don't have that picture up here that I did the last time Genesis to Revelation but what's happening as we go from Genesis Exodus Leviticus Numbers we're looking forward there's a there's a there's a Messiah coming there's the seed of the woman and it's going to come through Abraham and it's going to come through Abraham's son Isaac but it's delayed and so we wait trusting in God that he will bring about his purposes so so there's a um, promise that's being carried forward, and that theme is going through the whole Old Testament. And then, um, and then it's going to be the offspring, the son, is going to ultimately result in a great nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Well, now what happens when Isaac is born finally? Abraham and Sarah are so happy, overjoyed, because of the miraculous birth of uh, Isaac when uh, they were past the, when Sarah was past the childbearing age. In the book of Hebrews says, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Um, she trusted in God's promise, and, uh, and her faith is held up as an example for us. So now Isaac begins to grow, and we don't know how old he is, maybe just a young teenager or so. And then this great test comes, and it's a test. It's a test of how can God fulfill his promise if Isaac doesn't live because we're supposed to have a great nation and uh, offspring as many as the stars of heaven coming through Isaac. But now, what could happen here? After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now, he had another son, Ishmael, but it was not his son by Sarah, and so here's his kind of his son by his uh, by his wife, and in that sense, it's his only son, his only son um, according to the promise that God had given, and according to his marriage. Your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Incredible that God would ask this of the promised son that they had waited so long for, the one through whom the promises would come, the one through whom the Messiah would come. Who knows, is he even the Messiah? But how could that be? So God says, go offer him as a burnt offering. And just incredible agony of mind Abraham must have gone through, but Abraham rose early in the morning. This verb, will worship, is plural, and this verb, will come again, is plural in Hebrew. I and the boy will come again to you. Interesting. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. But you must imagine, his heart must have been in his throat as he said this, because he didn't know. So they went, both of them together. Would Abraham actually have to obey? Would God ask him to go through with this? When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar and there there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from Ab- from heaven and said, "'Abraham! Abraham!' And he said, "'Here am I.' He said, "'Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me.'" And Abraham looked, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns, And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now what do we have for themes here? If we can talk in more general terms, what what is happening? Well, one theme is that a father offers his son, his only son, whom he loves. And another theme that is happening is that the father receives his son back from near death. But another thing as we think about the passage is that the sacrifice of this son was not sufficient to pay for anyone's sins. How do we know that? Because God didn't require it. He didn't accept it. I think... I think we all we all are guilty before God. God has the right to require our lives of any one of us. The wages of sin is death. So at any moment, God could require our lives. And I suppose that God had the right to require Isaac's life, because Isaac, like all the rest of us, had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And perhaps Abraham realized that, but but then... The idea of a burnt offering, a sacrifice, implies that there must be some payment for sins. But but this wasn't to be the payment. God said, no. The sacrifice of this son was not sufficient to pay for anyone's sin. In fact, God himself provides the sacrifice for sins. And just one historical note, if you read in the kind of technical literature, a number of uh, geographers think that Mount Moriah that Abraham went to, is likely the location where Jerusalem was later built. Now, what do these themes indicate to us? Are you beginning to, get, beginning to get an idea of what's happening here? What is God teaching Abraham about the love of a father for his son and then the cost that it must involve for a father to give up his son? What is... God teaching all of us about the need for a sacrifice for sin, but this sacrifice was not sufficient. I think we can look at those themes and see, uh, with the benefit of the New Testament, we see fulfillment. First of all, a father offers his son, his only son, whom he loves. And I think this looks forward to the fact that in, in the years to come, a greater father will offer his son, his only son, whom he loves. And what does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And in the Abraham and Isaac story, Abraham, the father, received his son back from near death. I think that is, in a way, pointing forward to the greater son will die and be raised from the dead. In fact, Hebrews 11:17 says this story is a foreshadowing of resurrection. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Isaac is a type of Christ. Isaac is looking forward to Christ, and Abraham is, in this story, acting the role of God the Father, who gave his only son, whom he loved. The sacrifice of Isaac was not sufficient to pay for anyone's sins, but that, when something doesn't work, it doesn't doesn't really succeed, then it causes us to look forward to the fact that this greater son's sacrifice will be sufficient. There will be a sacrifice that's much better than the sacrifice that didn't happen, the sacrifice of Isaac. God himself provides the sacrifice for sins with the ram caught in the thicket for Abraham, and I think that looks forward to the fact that God himself will provide this future sacrifice, the sacrifice of his own son. So Abraham's words, God himself will provide the sacrifice, my son, are fulfilled in a way probably much greater than Abraham could have understood and when we realize that Mount Moriah is likely the location where Jerusalem was later built, we then read again here in Genesis, so Abraham called the name of, the Lord, name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And in fact, in this very place where the city of Jerusalem was built, now we see in fulfillment that God's own son would die on this mountain or this geographical location. And I think that helps us then make sense of what Jesus said in John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. I think Jesus is saying that when Abraham reflected back on those events of that incredibly difficult day in his life and then the great joy that God had provided the sacrifice. And then God said, I know that you... Fear me, you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And he received his son back. That Abraham must have realized that God's going to do something better than this. There's a greater sacrifice coming, there's a greater son that will be sacrificed. Abraham, in a way, figuratively or looking forward by thinking on those events, saw Christ's day and was glad. What do you think about that? Okay. Yeah, Bob? Oh, my goodness. I, I'm going to just repeat as you say Isaac helped carry the wood as Jesus carried his cross. Hadn't thought of that, Bob. Maybe a young teenager. I'm not sure if we know, but yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So Isaac, perhaps, probably, I don't know, maybe submitted willingly because he, he could have resisted, and Abraham was old. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Thanks, Bob. Amazing foreshadowing, isn't it? Yeah, what's your name? I'm Rosemary. Rosemary. Yes. And we will return. Somehow he had such faith that he knew that even if he took his son's life, God would bring him back. Somehow God is going to fulfill his promise. I, I don't know what he, I mean, he must have thought, Lord, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. But I know that you're going to fulfill your promise. So it was amazing. Amazing, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, should we go to another story? <clears throat> Um, I didn't get all the verses out here, but you remember the story where Joseph, uh, where he, he had uh, all his brothers of uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, his 11 brothers, and, uh, and but he was the one that was loved by his father. Well, I guess they are 10, because I don't know. Well, maybe Benjamin was born then. Benjamin was younger. Ah, I can't remember. But anyway, the other tribes of Israel. And, um, and uh, he was favored by his father. And uh, the, his father gave him a coat of many colors, and the sons were, the other brothers were jealous of this. And then and then Joseph goes and has these dreams of all his brothers bowing down to him and all this, and of course that doesn't make them very happy. Finally they just get rid of the troublesome little kid and throw him into the pit, and uh, they're going to leave him for dead, and then they decide to sell him to these traders, who carry him off to Egypt. So he's betrayed into slavery, And uh, again, I think Joseph is a type of Christ. He, in many ways, looks forward to Christ, but here are some examples. He's the son who is loved by his father, Uh, but he is betrayed by his brothers. Jesus was the son beloved by his father. Jesus was, of course, betrayed by his own people. Joseph was sold into slavery. Jesus was delivered up uh, to death. But then Joseph, after he goes to Egypt, is exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh to rule over the whole kingdom. And and so Jesus will be exalted at the right hand of the true king, the king of heaven and earth, to rule over the kingdoms of the world. The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And just as Joseph, by his rule, had people... You know, he he bought for Pharaoh all the, or, or taxed for Pharaoh, all the grain of the seven years of prosperity. So that in the seven years of famine, then people had food to eat. And so by Joseph's rule, he saved not only the people of his nation, but the other nations from death. And he brought blessing to the nation. So Jesus, by his rule, will bring a greater salvation to the nation, save them from eternal death, and bring blessing to all nations when he reigns as king at the right hand of God the Father who sits on the throne. So Joseph, uh, in many ways, looks forward to who Jesus would be, his humiliation, his suffering, and then his exaltation. Uh, oh, what's your name? How, Chuck. How about the fact that Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife? Oh, yeah, good. Yeah, Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, but he resisted temptation. A picture of Jesus being tempted, but also resisted temptation. Good. So there's a picture of purity and obedience there. So a lot of foreshadowing of what the Messiah would be. And remember, Clowney said, and I think this is right, a type combines similarities and differences. So there are similarities, but then uh, um, he's still, Joseph doesn't bring eternal salvation. He's just a foreshadowing. Okay. Hmm. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. I'll maybe do that next time. I'm not sure. Let's try one more here. Water from the rock. Um, I just came to this passage in my own reading the Bible this morning. Um, um, but uh, let's, let's read through it. This is after the people of Israel have come out of the land of Egypt. Moses has led them. Pharaoh has finally let them go. And, uh, they're out in the wilderness, and all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according that's, that just happens to sound like our word sin there's no connection. Um, the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and, and, cam, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Think Arizona desert, no water. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, Edmund Clowney, who wrote this book, The Unfolding Mystery, did some work on on this, on the Hebrew phrase for stand before. I will stand before you there. And he says, it's the only time in the Old Testament where God says he will stand before someone. The other times that this particular phrase is used, it's someone standing before a judge or someone standing before God to be judged. And so he says it's a legal setting. And uh, in fact, um, Moses comes with the elders. It's kind of a courtroom setting. And amazingly, God says, I will stand before you there, where? On the rock. So God says, Moses, you're going to take the place of judge, and I'm going to take the place of the accused person who stands before the judge, and I will stand on the rock, being willing to accept the judgment. The people are complaining. The people are grumbling. They are the people who are sinful. They're not trusting. But God says, you know what? They're sinful, but I'll stand in judgment. And I will take the judgment. And then God says to Moses, and you shall strike the rock. Oh. When God is standing on it, you take your staff and you strike the rock. That's like hitting God. Can you imagine that Moses must have trembled as he did that? How could he do this? But God told him to, so he obeyed. He struck the rock, and as in a figurative way, God accepted the judgment for the people's sin. Life-giving water poured forth out of the rock to bring, in a sense, physical salvation to the people, but A figure of eternal salvation. Where is Christ in this? (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. Is the rock, just as the ark was a picture of Christ, is the rock a picture of Christ taking the judgment of the judge, taking the punishment? I think it is. But now look what happens at a later point in the journey of the people of Israel. I think this helps, understand, <clears throat> helps us understand a puzzling passage. <clears throat> why, you say, well, why did Moses not get to go into the promised land for this incident? But I think when we understand what's going on, we see why. And the Lord said to Moses, Take the staff and assemble, the, this is again, they're out in the wilderness again, and they're, still, they're thirsty again, they're out of water. Same deal, but now this is a later event. Take the staff and assemble the congregation before you, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. He doesn't say strike the rock again, he just says speak to it, and the water will come forth. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. So he got all the people of Israel out there. And he said to them, "Hear now you rebels, shall we bring forth water for shall we bring water for you out of this rock?" Uh, Moses isn't having a really good day. <laughs> Here now, you rebels. <laughs> and Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out of it. He struck the rock twice. He had not been commanded to do so. It's as if he's striking God in anger, isn't it? Can you imagine that he would do that instead of just speaking to it? And the congregation drank and their livestock, there was grace from God. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, if he had upheld God as holy, if he had honored God and reverenced him, he he never would have struck that rock. Moses was frustrated with God. He was angry with God and he lashed out in anger. You did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore You shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. You understand why now Moses, it's amazing God didn't take Moses' life just instantly. He said, well, no, Moses, you're not not the Messiah. Even you have sin in your life. And because you've not honored me, reverenced me, because in anger you struck out as if you were hitting me, you will not lead the people into the land. Now, I think this helps us to understand what Paul meant when Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.14, talking about these two incidents, Paul says, they all drank the same spiritual drink, this the people of Israel, and they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Does it make sense? No? Paul, that's how Paul understands. Paul had insight into that, and he understood what, in fact, God was teaching his people as the rock was a type of Christ. Look forward to Christ. God himself taking the judgment. What do you think about that? <laughs> Sandy? What does it mean that the rock followed them? I, 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 that has always, that has <laughs> What does it mean the rock followed them? I, I, I mean, think... I, 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 I yeah I don't He's think this yeah, yeah, I think that the that God's spiritual presence in the rock was in one place and then was another, so uh, and how 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 could it be one rock and then another rock, uh well, Paul is saying the rock was Christ who was going with <laughs> them, I don't think it was one rock that kind of rolled him, no <laughs> mm. yeah,, uh, I forgot your name, Lynn, yeah, oh, yeah, you did the announcement at the beginning, yeah. yeah <laughs> the one I'm using <laughs> English standard version. Um, um, yeah, it is. What is it? Exodus verse six. Exodus seventeen six behold I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb al the Hebrew word is al it's a it's um it's a it's a kind of a guttural stop a backwards a backwards apostrophe and then al and it means on. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, you know, Behold, I will stand lifne, before you there on the rock. And. Um, Yeah, I don't know what the NIV was doing there. They must have said, oh, I don't know, I'll stand by the rock. I don't but the words don't mean that. And maybe that's an example of um, of the NIV. Some versions try to say, well, let's make it understandable for people. And, and so that's kind of a, an illustration of a difference between a word-for-word translation, where a word-for-word translation says, <clears throat> if the word says on, translate on. Even if you don't understand quite what it's about, make it be on. Um, and, uh, and a more dynamic equivalent or paraphrase translation says, how could, how could God be on the rock? Maybe God was by the rock. But mistake, I think. Um, King James says, I will stand before thee there upon the rock. The, just a minute, just taking a minute. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Jewish people used, and that's epi, on, on the rock. And the New American Standard is for sure going to say on. Stand before you there, on the rock, New American Standard. It's a word-for-word translation. So was the King James. The New King James, I'm pretty sure it's going to be on the rock. So anyway, thanks, Lynn. Um, okay, Chantel. Hmm? ESV is English standard version yeah, but the the the, the essentially literal or word for word translations are all going all going be fair and accurate on this all means on. Um, uh, the English standard version, the new American standard, the new King James, the King James um, so Holman Christian Standard. yeah, what's your name? No epi is not by epi is upon or on the Greek word and all is on now I mean that word must occur three four thousand times in the Old Testament, so maybe somebody can dig up some strange occurrence but but normally it's the word that means on or upon uh, I don't think they they it was get the idea and they're they're not as the n i v is not as careful with individual words, and the new living and the message are even. More free and more paraphrased. um, And sometimes you don't know what meaning you're missing. So, okay. Well, let's see where we are. We've got 922. Water from the rock. Water from the rock. They drank. Okay. Well, let's see. I've got three minutes left. I don't know if I should do Jericho or not. What do you. Hmm? Bob, what do you. You know what Jericho's kind of a long story, oh, that's a long i i'm not, I am not. can not do it, yep, yeah, so we should get out and let him and i didn't I forgot to put a we've been singing a lot of times, but I forgot to get a transparency of a hymn, so'm gonna miss that today, and um why don't I pray and our Lord and God, we give you thanks uh throughout your word, you have been showing us that you provide the way of salvation. You provided the ark, and then the ark bore the waters of judgment. You provided the sacrifice that was there instead of Isaac, and the sacrifice looked forward to the sacrifice of your son. And you stood before the people on the rock, and you took the judgment that they deserved and abundant waters of salvation and life came forth. So, Lord, we thank you. Lord God, we give you praise for your good work in your word, for your good work among your people throughout history, that all of this look forward to our Savior Jesus, in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. And so we give you thanks. We thank you that you did not spare your son, your only son, whom you love, but gave him up for us all. So go with us this week. Teach us in your word as we read. Help us to trust you as Abraham did. Help us to be faithful to you in all that you command us to do. That we might honor you and bring you glory through our lives. Amen. See you next week. Jericho. (laughs) And a few more. We're going to be showing the passion movie to a bunch of junior high kids tomorrow. Oh, wow. Somewhere.